up everybody my name is james d fiore and this is blackballed uh, i'm really excited about today's show um it's actually not very often that i get to interview somebody who um who i would consider a legit hero of mine to be honest with you i feel that way about a lot of the people who are whistleblowers um the edward snowdens of the world Julian Assange, even though, you know, even the people that you don't think that you might like in person, like Julian Assange doesn't seem like a guy that I might want to hang out with, but the work that he did, I think is important with WikiLeaks, Chelsea Manning, the same thing. And my guest today as well, she is an Air Force veteran. She is also a former NSA translator who received the harshest sentence for a person who was convicted of the type of crime that she was convicted of which was uh, leaking classified material to a news outlet. But the ramifications of her case and the ripple effect of her case are still kind of being felt today. And uh, I think it's important to, to at least recognize that when people put their own lives on the line in order to make their country better, that should be something that we all take a step back and, and fight against state powers that would want to keep people like that in prison. Um, especially when it's more political than anything else. And so, uh, you know, today we're going to be able to speak with someone who who has experience in all of those levies and especially um, the sort of lack of justice that came with her case. And I would like to welcome to the show Reality Winner. Reality, how are you? Hi, thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming. Um, your case is, is is one of those cases that I remember reading about at the time and thinking, Wow, five years for something that uh, I I believe I'm not mis- if I'm not mistaken is is the harshest sentence ever received for someone convicted of something like that. Isn't that that's correct? Isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so far, sixty three months. So five years and three months was the harshest sentence, the longest one, and um, apparently award winning if you were on the prosecution team. Yeah, yeah, and, and actually, we we were. Sp- we were speaking before the show started. I didn't know uh, that Samantha B, formerly of The Daily Show, I can't remember what show she hosts uh, now, but um, did a whole like 11 minute thing on your on your story that I thought was hilarious. But the one thing that stuck out for you was um, what the was it the district attorney? Yes. Um, can you explain what the district attorney did that was so off-putting? Because I just watched it, but I, I thought before I before I watched it, I had no idea that he did it. And you were like, Samantha B was the only one to cover what he just did. Can you tell us what he did? So what the prosecution did was they made excellent use of the media. Um, all aspects of my character and conduct that had nothing to do with the actual charge or indictment, they aired publicly but only when it helped their case, you know, only when I was up for bond were they concerned with my diary entries. Um, Only when I was, you know, basically we, 
presented that historically everybody who has been charged under 793E of the Espionage Act has gotten pretrial bond, pretrial release. You know, there, there is no flight risk. You know, my parents were actually willing to offer everything they own as collateral just so that I could be out of the abusive county jail conditions while we worked on a defense, my own criminal defense. And so the DA and the prosecution, you know, really turned this into some kind of scandal over who I was. And the day that I was sentenced, even though it was an agreed plea deal, even though I took full responsibility for my actions, and even though the court accepted the plea deal, you know, they chose to, you know, erect a podium outside the courthouse and have like this entire press conference over what a bad person I was when all I ever did was take responsibility for what I did from day one. Yeah, that that was part of what I thought was so heroic about what you did is that you didn't you didn't hide. You know, like there was there there was there was no it felt like there was no hesitation. And then when when the hammer started to come down on you that you were like, yeah, I did it. Let, let's let's deal with the fact that I did it and let's see what we can work out. Were you expecting a sentence like or were you expecting there to be some sort of leniency? So I wasn't expecting a sentence because while I knew I violated NSA rules and my oath of taking a contract under NSA, um, I really thought it was very obvious as to why I did what I did and that no harm was done. Um, but I didn't actually understand the political timing of what I did. And I didn't understand that they wanted someone to nail to the door and that I was the perfect someone for that. Um, so really what I thought is that I did it. And I thought that under 793E of the Espionage Act, once indicted, that you can take it to trial and you can argue you know, intent you know, that there was no criminal intent and there was no damage caused and there was, you know, no malice in it. And unfortunately, that's not relevant to the charge. Yeah. Um, and that almost makes it impossible to go against in a court of law. I did what I did and I was willing to take some responsibility. Um, but really, if I had taken that to trial, I'd still be in prison today. I would have gotten the full 10 years. Yeah, and that's what's really strange about it. Um, I just want to put a little quote up from Samantha B as well. So she says, the information that she revealed, many states have been using it ever since to secure their election system. We need just to remind people of the debt that we owe Reality Winner, because we actually really do. There's a communication petition in place, or sorry, a commutation petition in place, and I really hope that the Biden administration honors that. She really made a difference. She's a whistleblower, not a spy. And then there was another one, and I think... Out of anyone's audience, my audience is the most likely to pen a sternly worded letter and send it to the exact right person. This is a big deal. She's being facetious there because she's a she's a comedian and not uh, and not a political stalwart. But but it's it's funny and not funny that the person who seemed to be uh, to have the best sort of way of explaining your case is a comedian. That does a lot better climate right now. I mean, that's where we're getting so much of the uncensored truth from these days. It's not going to be agree. on corporate news media. No, it's not. And you, you have such an interesting career. I know you don't like to talk about what you did for the government. I know you can't talk about certain th things that you did for the government. But if I may just 
um, just sort of give you give the audience a clue. What you did when you were in the Air Force and what you did with the NSA, it almost seems like you should be kind of a darling of both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. When you were in the Air Force, um, you were part of the drone strike program. You helped identify terrorists. I think, didn't you receive some sort of commendation for helping remove 100 plus uh, enemy combatants from the battlefield? I did receive a service medal in the Air Force. Can I ask you if that was a difficult job? I think that most military careers are really difficult. Um, and because of a lot of personal turmoil that I had in my early 20s with mental illness, that, you know, my career was extremely difficult and hard on, on me in a lot of different ways. And then you went to the NSA and became a translator. You were working for a subcontractor of the NSA. Is that right? Correct. People don't know how smart you are, I think. Like you speak, how many languages do you speak? I've shown a good day, but um, I, I can read classical Latin, um, some biblical Hebrew, and then I was trained to know Farsi, Dari, and Pashto. Yeah, see, Samantha B kind of talked about this too when she called uh, she called the uh, the whistleblowers the whistleblower bros, and she she cited Edward Snowden and Julian Assange, and 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 at the time um, Bradley Manning, who's now Chelsea Manning. I feel like the media, especially, you know, Fox was not your friend, um, but they didn't spend enough time talking about how accomplished you are and how intelligent you are and how broad your skill base is. Because your skill set is that of a person who is like a Rhodes Scholar. Like you, you're speaking these languages, you're helping out your government, making your country safe. And all that came out, like, I mean, Fox News did like six stories about your pantyhose because that's how you snuck out the the classified documents. I, just as a woman, I'm just curious, like, did you sort of feel, <clears throat> excuse me, that you're that you weren't being taken seriously because you were a female? Exactly. But we were afraid to talk about any of that because it was weaponized against me um, only during the bond hearings. Um Basically, the lead prosecutor said that as a child wanting to join the military, you know, because 9-11 happened when I was nine years old, that I had decided that I was going to join the Air Force simply so I could be in a position one day to release documents. Um, my military service, I mean, it took me years to view myself even as a veteran again, because how they weaponized my military service. Um, they let the judge believe that because the Air Force had trained me in Farsi and Pashto, that I was going to take my life savings and run away from these charges and rebuild my life in those countries, even though like nobody wants to live in Iran or Afghanistan. Like no. I'm a woman, you know, um, the, the gender na uh, nature of the attacks against me. You know, everything I was able to do, everything that I knew was weaponized against me. And so we were, you know, when talking about how to get my story out and how to let people know that, you know, I'm suffering here. This is what's happening to me. Um, we were afraid to talk about this. Um, yeah, I don't blame you. I mean, and and listen, I, I'm, I'm going to try to figure out a way how to how to talk about this next subject in a way that doesn't make you feel like I'm throwing anyone that you might know or be friends with under the bus because that's not my intention. But the fact that the Intercept, when they received that those documents from you, 
sent it back to the NSA. I was really like, I didn't know about that detail until just a couple of days ago. Um, your whole life would have been completely different if they didn't do that. Did, oh, you ever get an explanation? Did you ever get an explanation as to why that happened? Because I know Glenn Greenwald threw, um, not through, Glenn, Green, Glenn Greenwald claims uh, that the uh, the editor at the time, her name escapes me, is the reason that that happened. But I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the what your thoughts are on that or who who you blame, if anyone. You know, I've worked with several journalists since then, and they've personally sought answers from The Intercept. And, you know, Journalism 101, Protect Your Sources, um, they failed at that. But not only for me, but for Daniel Hale, who is still in prison, as well as Terry Albury, who is still on federal supervised release. He was sentenced um, a year after I was arrested. So they simply don't protect their sources and then write about them later as some type of martyr. Um, I think it's a pattern. I think it's by design. It doesn't lessen what I did. I broke the law and I'm always going to take responsibility for that. Mm. Um, they would have found me anyway. You know, the, the feds would have figured it all out. It's not like I truly hid my identity in any way. Um, yeah, just, just in Glenn, yeah, just in Glenn Greenwald's defense, I mean, he doesn't seem like the type of journalist that would do that. So I do kind of believe him when he said that it was probably someone else up on the food chain. Can you tell me who those other people are that you just mentioned and what they were uh, sentenced, why they were sentenced? Because that my Canadian audience might not be familiar with that. Okay, so Terry Albury was an FBI agent who witnessed firsthand racial discrimination against Black communities in America, especially Black Muslim communities. And, you know, his, his viewpoint was that, you know, he joined the FBI to stop child sex trafficking in the United States, to protect communities. And time and time again, he was being sent to illegally infiltrate mosques simply because he was the only black man in the office. Um, and so he gave that information to the intercept and in basically the, the sloppy way that the intercept released all of this information um, kind of directly pointed back towards him and didn't take the FBI that long. Um, he received 40 something months. I'm sorry. I don't know the exact number. Mm -hmm. um, he got out shortly before I did. And uh, the same thing with Daniel Hale is that he gave information to the intercept and the intercept took him on book tour, you know, with them. He's been photographed with them. Um, and the FBI had, and the DOJ had basically had him on notice for years with 11 indictments of 793E pending against him. They just never formally decided to charge him. And so he had been on pretrial release for years and years and years. And finally, in I believe it was early 2020, um, he was also as part of his pretrial release, he was required to go to therapy. But the therapist was a government therapist. And so the moment he expressed intention for self-harm, he was immediately put in solitary confinement in a county jail. And that is why he pled guilty because he had no choice. It was indefinite detention in solitary confinement in the Alexandria County jail because he told a therapist that he thought he was going to harm himself. So he was sentenced and he received 46 months. 
wouldn't that just make a person's mental state that much worse? Right. Like, oh, absolutely. Know, you, um, you that, you're an advocate on, on, on prison reform now, aren't you? Because of the, what you experienced when you were inside. Right. Yeah. I mean, I find reform reform to be a dirty word. I'm more of an abolitionist. Okay. The an, aboli an abolitionist in the sense of uh, you don't want for-profit prisons and the way they're run right now, or you just think that put, sentencing people to be in jail is is what should be abolished? Um, so definitely um, any type of incarceration or detention for nonviolent crimes is extremely costly to the taxpayer. However, none of that money goes to the inmate. It costs the U.S. taxpayer approximately thirty-two dollars to $35,000 a year to house each federal inmate, yet their fee they fed us for less than $2 a day. Um, we didn't have any equipment. Um, we, didn't, we barely... I was a tutor in the GED program for people, and we were using high school and middle school textbooks from like 2002. It was ridiculous, the lack of resources that we had. So... The if the true cost of every taxpayer dollar went to the inmates, you would see less recidivism. However, because it is for profit, it's it's a it's a freaking turnstile. It's just a it's just a door. It's a pipeline to keep going back to prison because it's profitable. Um, so I mean, I'm you know looking at policy solutions to figure out how we can only temporarily detain people who are actively causing harm or actively violent and what the re the actual rehabilitation is for that to get them back in society and not harming people anymore. Yeah. You know what, it, it, when you're talking there, it makes me feel like, um, cause you know, prison is, is theoretically supposed to be about rehabilitation. Obviously we probably know that most of the time that doesn't happen. So in, in, when you were talking, it made me feel like maybe the prison system needs rehab. You know, maybe reform is a dirty word. Maybe rehab is is a better word for that because the for profit. I'm from Canada. We have universal health care. So there's there's two things now in my life that that don't make sense uh, when you add for profit in front of them. One of them is for profit health care. That just seems like oxymoronic and for profit prisons. I would put in that pile as well. Um, and, and you're living proof of that. Now, just just uh, when I was uh, when I was doing my reality winter deep dive and I was and I was listening to um, you talk about the conditions inside prison and how, you know, you were, I mean, I, I, you were thinking of taking your own life at one point. And uh, I think you credited your mom for, for helping you through that dark period. Yes, there was so much serendipity going on that October um, because I was in that space for maybe three weeks straight, just waiting for the right day. And, you know, really practicing what I was going to do over and over again. And it just so happened that there was a day that, um, well, first of all, in those three weeks, you know, my mom kept putting off her trip. She was supposed to go back to Texas any day now she was going to leave. And I was just like, okay, fine. Like as soon as she gets home, you know, that's it. And, um, just so happened that she didn't leave. And there was a day that I was randomly transported to the courthouse to meet with my attorneys because everything was so top secret that they made us, you know, meet in a janitor closet that didn't have air conditioning, you know? So you're looking at my attorneys that are like in suits, sweating like crazy. And there's like 
three, it's a, it's like a six by three room. You know what I mean? It was smaller than my, my jail cell um, that you're expecting my, my paid attorneys to meet with me in. Um, so anyway, that actually, I had like a complete uh, mental breakdown that day. And, you know, I called one of my attorneys once I got back to the jail and I said, so I'm actually not okay right now. And this is what's going on. And like when I kind of came out to him with my mental illness, he immediately understood. Like, I didn't think any of the men were going to understand like how serious um, and life threatening a condition that bulimia is for women. Mm -hmm. I mean, for men too, but I mean, for women, especially. And he immediately understood. He said, oh, this is not okay. You can't be in there. And it was like, yeah, I mean, I'm not okay, you know? And I think being able to come out and just say that, like that decreased the burden by so much. Um, but shortly after that, I was medicated and say what you will about SSRIs. You know, I haven't killed myself, you know, um, I got out of that. Um, but yes, mental illness in any kind of confined space, you know, and, and they say all the time, the conditions of the jail, the conditions of detention, the conditions of any prison that you're in are not the punishment, the separation from society is a, you know, it's a, um, it's a consequence of your action, but the conditions under which you are housed is not a punishment. It just, it's so crazy why the conditions are so abusive, um, neglectful and retaliatory. Absolutely. Um, one of my biggest fears is, uh, in fact, my, my ex is still mad at me to this day because I went to a film festival in, uh, in Arizona and it was April Fool's Day. And I told her that I got arrested and placed in prison. It was a joke. And she still hasn't forgiven me because of, <laughs> because of what she thinks of American prisons. They scare the shit out of me. You know, like I, oh, I am. Holy shit. I'd be mad at you too. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just every single woman I see now. No, but, but it's true. Like, I mean, and, and it doesn't, soften that blow when the prison is a woman's prison it's it's just as horrendous and just as scary right it's actually worse and they tell us that if you wanted things to be better then you would stick together like the men do and you would riot properly and you'd get what you want that's why your food isn't better that's why your recreation center isn't better because y'all don't stick together like the men so even within the prison you know, the officers and the lieutenants talked down to us and said, your conditions are, you deserve these conditions because you're female, because you're not like men and you're not going to riot like men. Wow. So they can't just reward you with good food because you're behaving well. Like if like they reward bad behavior, that's the, that's the concept. Exactly. Cause they're allotted X amount of dollars per day to feed us. And most of that budget goes towards the staff groceries. Wow. They go grocery shopping in prison kitchens. Really? We've literally, we used to run out of food on days where there were like salads or like they had like these little microwavable pizzas where it's like, if you, if that was the only pizza you were going to get for the next 20 years, like women took that night seriously. And I had heard uh, from one of the kitchen workers that the staff were carrying out boxes of these little fucking microwavable pizzas that you can get for $2 at Walmart, taking out boxes of them. And lo and behold, that night, they didn't even have enough to feed the last unit of 150 women. 
as an Italian, I'm offended just because of the pizza, but as a human being, <laughs> I'm offended because of the rest of it. Um, you're, you're, you're making me think of, um, you know, of, of how prison systems, um, not only the recidiv, recidiv can you say the word for me, please? Recidivism. Thank you Got very it. much for recidivism. <laughs> um, but just the toll that it does take on the mental health. So even if you're not a person who reoffends, you know, you're now uh, trying to enter a world that is unfamiliar to you for a lot in a lot of cases um, with anxiety and depression and possible suicidal thoughts or bulimia or whatever. You know, like you're 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 and they put you back in that place. And then, you know, and then it, it feels it does feel intentional. It's you know, like no the system is meant to be that way. It's meant by design to break you down. And then right when you're at like that, your, your snapping point, you're released. And the halfway house, the transition home is 10 times harder. And it's 10 times more arbitrary. And then, you know, I finally got out of that and got put on probation. And, you know, I had a half marathon planned on my birthday because my favorite thing to do on my birthday is run 13.1 miles. And it was two hours away. But here I am on supervised release, you know, seeing people on supervised release who are traveling across state lines, staying overnight, going on vacation. And my probation officer said, oh, no, you're not leaving the Southern District of Texas. And I said, well, I have a half marathon in San Antonio. And he said, I don't see why I would ever let you go to San Antonio. And, you know, I mean, I have a mental breakdown. Like you have someone like me who I have everything to live for. And I reach these breaking points time and time again. Like you, you can ask my attorney. I call her all the time. Like, I just want to go back to prison. Like, at least I get the world in there and I know how bad it can get, you know, out here. It's so hard to have things that I want to do and be so close and everybody else gets treated normally. And here I can't even go two hours away from my home. You know, I have to have a special um, court, I guess, permission slip to go to work because I coach at 515 in the morning. And my curfew, which nobody else on federal probation has, is from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. You know, I'm 30 years old and I have a 10 p.m. curfew every night of the year. How long is that probation for? Till November 2024. Wow. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. And you have, if I'm not mistaken, well, I'm sure you have, but uh, or maybe you haven't. Uh, have you appealed to the Biden administration, to, uh, you know, for, for for what would you call that, a commuted sentence or 
I appealed, I, I mean, I applied for a pardon in June. And within two weeks, the Biden administration response was, you're not even eligible to ask for a pardon. Try again in 2026. When your probation's over. Yeah, when, when my life goes back to normal and basically it's like, okay, I have a felony record. Um, I mean, in Texas, that doesn't really mean much. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know what life is going to look like in 2026, but I'm not really going to need a pardon as much as I do right now when I'm trying to rebuild and see my family. Yeah. Um, can I just, uh, just as an aside, I've been to Texas. Um, I went to Beaumont, Texas to visit my friend. Mm-hmm. Not a good place to start your Texas travels. Yeah, I was like, ooh. Yeah, I, I, I'm from Canada. I had never heard a gunshot before. I think I was like 17. And mm-hmm. then I get to, uh, I get to the, the bus stop in Beaumont, Texas, and I'm reading the local paper. And it's like three dead and seven injured at the Rock and Robin nightclub. And I'm like, oh, it's oh, crazy. And then I got picked up and I went to my buddy's apartment where he was with his family. And I, we, went, we went out to the balcony and right across the street was the Rock and Robin nightclub. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> So, um, and you have an AR-15 that's pink. That's interesting. I, I don't why I don't understand why Fox News doesn't love the shit out of you if you have a, a pink AR-15. Oh yeah, CNN was afraid to cover that. Um, I had wanted an AR-15 throughout my time in the military, and um, just because of the politics, it was really hard to get one. Mm-hmm. So my dad basically got a bunch of parts and built it by hand. What? Um, and so there's something up about there's one part of it that jams all the time so i call it the jam master but it's pink um i have like these metallic well i had none of this is in my possession anymore doj don't worry (laughs) um but i had like these metallic pink magazines for it and like a lime green case yeah i I, i'm canadian i haven't i don't know if i've ever seen an ar-15 but um but to have a pink one I, i i it just made me surprised that fox news was so hard on you um, is it true that the James Comey firing was kind of the thing that triggered you to actually maneuver on the, on the classified materials to begin with? You know, that really makes sense. And I've actually had to, this is so bad, like, um, not playing dumb here, but, uh, the trauma, I don't remember that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, to, to help with my memory, I've read the FBI interrogation transcript um, to see like what I told them and what I was feeling. Um, I cannot tell you what the day of May 9th felt like other than I got out of work. I know I went to yoga that night because that was the mailbox that I used. Um, but yeah, there's just been so much trauma and I don't know why I did it that day. I really don't. It's crazy. Do you regret it? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, zero out of 10 would not do again. Um, yeah, breaking the law is not my thing. Um, the consequences were so harsh. Um, obviously I didn't save the country and, um, I had a really fulfilling career and I was really on to, uh, doing some great things in the world as far as de-escalating the global war on terror, which was kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to go into humanitarian aid and, you know, that's all gone now. You know, I, I live with my parents and I coach CrossFit full time, which is, I love it, but yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I mean, you look like you're in like amazing shape and (laughs) 
I mean, it's your job to, to kind of stay in shape. And, uh, you know, it, that must be in and of itself kind of therapeutic, no? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, one of the, the, the weird things about this is wherever I have been detained or incarcerated, sorry about that. Listen, my the last podcast I had my dog howled until I just had to get off the air. So it's totally fine. Wonderful. He should calm down in a second once we get our mail. No worries. Um, oh, is know, that the mailman? Yeah. Yeah, it's wow. a big classic event. dog. Yeah. Um, everywhere I've been, I made the best of it and I kept my love of CrossFit. Um, even if it was in the county jail doing pistol squats and handstand push-ups. And when I got to prison, I made it my goal within eight months, I took over the recreation center. I was the lead uh, fitness instructor. I ran nutrition programs for women. Um, I taught rehabilitative yoga. I did circuit training, cycling, you name it. You know what I mean? Teaching five, six, seven hours a day because it was like, I was just looking at, you know, these are normal people. I've never taught fitness to normal people before. You know, I've always been surrounded by athletes or people in the military. And so I became a better coach and a better instructor because of my time. And so coming out into the community and immediately getting a job as a CrossFit instructor, I mean, it was meant to be, and it made my, t- my four years incarcerated meaningful. Um, I'm just curious. I'm just thinking of this question now. So, uh, I mean, uh, it might be a stupid question for all I know, but did, was the government allowed to continue to question you once you were incarcerated? No, but the pressure did not let up. Um, everything I did or said, um, I would immediately be called up front. And then it would be one of my attorneys saying, whoa, 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 you said this to your sister three hours ago and the prosecution is mad. And I'm just like, what are they going to do? Put me in jail? Like, <laughs> yeah. I didn't cross a line, you know? Um, it would come up in hearings. Like we said, listen, like she's bulimic. She's not doing okay. Mm-hmm. And they were just like, oh, well, Special Agent Garrick has been at the jail. He's watched her working out. She gets plenty of exercise. And it was just like, um, I had written a note to one of the guys down the hall because you can do that in uh, small county jails. And I just said, you know, he asked how I was doing. He said, we heard you were vegetarian and there's no way you're eating enough. What can we send you? Like, the, that's how county jail goes. It's insane. Are you um, a vegetarian? I was, yes, at the time. Yeah. Um, religious vegetarian. And they, they couldn't, even though I was a federal inmate, they couldn't provide a kosher menu. And they couldn't even provide a vegetarian substitute. So I said, don't worry. Like I got an entire tray of peas and corn, peas and corn are dope. And so the lead prosecutor unrolled this itty bitty note that was in a sugar packet that I was trying to throw down the hall and said, the defendant is eating just fine. It says right here, peas and corn are dope, you know? And I'm just like, I'm livid, but I'm also like, I just made a federal prosecutor say peas and corn are dope. Yeah, that's. A, I'm. I'm just happy that a 30 year old knows what the word dope is because it's kind of an old school term, right? Are you a hip hop girl? Yeah, kind of. Really? Yeah. What kind of hip hop do you like? Because I'm a hip hop head, and I, as you can probably tell from the intro music, you know. Oh yeah, I, I enjoyed that. Um, lately, I've just been feeling a lot of Rick Ross, Meek Mill. You know, I really feel Meek Mill right now because the whole we were the, both on probation. Yeah, I was about to say all the prison stuff, eh? You know, I mean, obviously, you go back into the 90s, uh, you know, love 90s hip hop. But um, 
Yeah, me I'm really too. feeling that right now. Of course, Lil Wayne, because I got a Lil Wayne tattoo in prison. I mean, just loving it. So, dude, that's the most hardcore gangster thing I've ever heard. You got a right. Lil Wayne tattoo <laughs> in prison. Your we favorite probably- rappers right now yeah. are former prison guard and Meek Mill. This is like you're gangster. It was well, so it was actually really funny because we were on lockdown that week because it was the inauguration and they were expecting another January 6th. So anytime we went on lockdown, it meant that the prison riot controls were actually out on the streets. And so because the prisons were, you know, uh, you know, skeleton crew manning, we would get locked down. So we were locked down for the inauguration. And so part of that was we weren't allowed to watch the news. We could watch movies all day, but we couldn't watch the news. And so that Sunday night, I was just like, fuck it. We're on lockdown. I'm going to sneak into somebody else's cell and get, you know, this tattoo that I've wanted for a while. Oh, and shit. so you got a tattoo like under like the, the cover of like, it wasn't like an actual tattoo person that came in. Staff is there supervising like it's oh, a it legit was- prison tattoo. Yeah, it was a poke and stick, um, wow. and it was uh, WWLWD, what would Lil Wayne do? And then the next morning, that motherfucker gets a pardon from Trump. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh my I God. was like, it's sign. It was meant to be. Yeah, it was. Well, here, listen, I, I have a May 9th trauma story as well. Um, May 9th is the anniversary of me and my ex. So every May 9th, I also <laughs> experienced a little bit of trauma. That's true. <laughs> Um, I'm going to play a clip and it's the shortest clip of all time, but I want you to know that despite the regret that you might feel the granddaddy of whistleblowers feels a little bit differently. So we'll just take a look at this and we'll talk about it when we come back. And that is, do you think that that reality winner should be freed? Yes. Daniel Ellsberg. He went on to talk about a whole bunch of other stuff after that, that had not much to do with you, but but Daniel Ellsberg, uh, for those who don't know, the person that leaked the Pentagon Papers, he said his regret was that he leaked the Pentagon Papers after the war was done. I think, um, but but he, uh, you know, I still think he's a hero, but he has kind of a good point there. I mean, when you saw what was happening in the news, you might not have a memory of it because of the trauma that you experienced, and I'm really sorry that you did experience that trauma, but really at the end of the day, you saw what was happening in the world and and you tried to do something about it and and you got uh, a five-year sentence for your troubles out of that five years how much did you serve was it just over four and a half or something it was it was technically four and a half years in federal custody okay how does it make you feel when someone like daniel ellsberg like legit refers to you as as a hero i mean it feels good um i actually didn't know much about him or until somebody sent me the pentagon papers when i was in prison um i did zero research before i did what i did guys sorry um (laughs) so i had no idea that there there was like such history to this um and you know i have done some webinars with him um last summer when i was on home confinement and we were supposed to have like a one-on-one zoom session but it fell through um but that would have been really nice um, it, it's flattering. Yeah. You know, he's, he's an American icon. He's a hero. He is. He's a legit hero. We have just have a person, a viewer there that's saying, uh, Rob Rogers. I wrote to her in prison a few times. She's really an awesome person. What they did to her was terrible. She never belonged there. Do you remember getting letters from a lot of people when you were in prison? Oh yeah. It was really embarrassing at mail call sometimes. Um, <laughs> 
you know, sometimes I've had officers just hand me like there's 200 people in a unit and the officer just hands me like a whole bucket of mail, like in front of 200 people and says, I'm sure that's yours anyway. Um, <laughs> it was it was really like anxiety because <laughs> I don't like attention. Yeah. Um, but so much mail, so many books. I could get any book I wanted for anybody on the unit and people knew that. So I would just send oh. out booklets because people were so desperate to send me things. You were like Brooks from Shawshank. Oh, yeah, for you know? sure. Yeah, walking around with your little squeaky wagon of books, you know, handing them <laughs> out to the fellow inmates. Yeah. Um, was there, was that, that must have been like for all intents and purposes, because you do seem like a person who tries to find the positive. And I know that you were going through some stuff, but was there an upside to prison? And was that one of them? It was. And then for me, I mean, I mean, I, I consider it four years of university because a couple weeks before uh, the FBI raided me and arrested me, my sister and I had watched the documentary 13th together. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about um, systemic racism in the United States. We were talking about environmental racism. In fact, I had visited the state director of Georgia about a situation that was happening you know, on the river in Georgia that was going to affect predominantly black communities, especially where I was living. And so we had those conversations all throughout April and May. And, you know, of course we had watched um, Orange is the New Black and all of a sudden I'm living it and I'm living it for four years. And I don't know, you know, I never had like a big vision of getting out or for the future. I'm pretty nihilistic and you know, I went through some really, really, really tough times where I didn't even care, you know, what happened to me. Um, but all throughout that, there were these points of brightness where it was like, I need to remember this person. I need to remember her story. I need to remember what it was like to be in a federal lockdown after George Floyd was murdered. You know, these are really important moments and experiences. And if people out there are listening to me, then it's my job to share these these stories and experiences um, and try to do what I can to lessen the systemic racism in my country. You know, it's, it's, a, it's really refreshing to hear someone, um, some, first of all, someone from Texas <laughs> say that, right? But, but all, all kidding aside, you, you aren't, uh, you know, a prototypical progressive, right? Like you're not like, you know how the world is polarized, right? Like, I feel like there's only two camps a lot of times, and the people that don't belong to either of those camps are usually really apathetic and very quiet, right? So we have these loud groups that are always talking to each other, and you don't fit the mold of either side, right? There's parts of you that fit the mold of one side or the other, but together I feel like this that, that you create like a good collage of a good citizen. And... um I don't, I don't even know what my question is. Uh, one question I wanted to ask you when you were talking earlier about your diet inside prison. I was wondering if anyone has ever given, like the media has ever given you a hard time for your religious beliefs. Uh, they haven't. And it's kind of something that they just don't go over at all. You know, it's something that's really talked about. Um, I've done a lot of Christian podcasts. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, I mean, it's, it's not something that's, that's, that's given a lot of light or airtime. Is this your first atheist podcast? Cause. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> if it is, it's the first one I'm aware of. Okay. Well, I didn't even, you know, it's it's not an atheist podcast. I just happen to be an atheist who has a podcast. But yeah, I was just curious because because one of the things about you that I I really like is that is is that you are that sort of uh, I call it I've been calling people like you like the political ambidextrous. Okay, like yeah. you 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 don't need to plant a flag on the right or the left, but you're. Uh, wise enough to see that you probably need both wings in order to fly politically, right? Like th this, uh, I feel like every time your country elects a Democrat or Republican, your nation is flying around with one bum wing. Yeah, and it's you know, and it's difficult to like to to guide that ship. Um, do you think that America needs a third party, like a centrist party? In order to be a true democracy, the ballot needs to be open um, to more than three parties. Um, I understand that you know, that can detract and make sure that like, the, the winner won't have a true majority majority at that point. Mm. But there should at least be multiple um, parties on the ballot. There should be multiple parties recognized. Um, people should be willing to debate candidates from multiple parties. Um, because, I mean, I, I do identify sometimes where most of the time as a Democrat, because mm -hmm. I feel like even though they don't deliver on their promises, in public, they're willing to address systemic racism. They're willing to address the climate. I understand there's a lot of corporate interests in there that get ugly. And like, you know, Biden's only invested like $100 million into more policing, even though um, those of us on the left were saying we want to, you know, divest these funds into, you know, mental health crisis teams as opposed to the police. Mm -hmm. And that we wanted to basically start doing away with the war on drugs, not give a hundred million dollars to the police, not further militarize the police when we don't believe half of these things are um, jail worthy offenses. And, you know, but on the other side, it's like, I can't, I can't do with the right. I can't do with, you know, the, the dog whistles. I can't do with the scapegoating of refugees or the conflating of fentanyl, fentanyl to the refugee crisis at the border. They're two separate things. Mm -hmm. They exacerbate each other. Everybody is less safe because they're going on at the same time, but they are not the same thing. And so as, a, as somebody living in one of the southernmost parts of Texas, um, I, I feel like both parties are letting us down. Yeah. And, and that's kind of how we look at your politics, too. And, and it's, uh, you know, a lot of Americans, you might be an exception. I'm not sure. It doesn't matter either way. But a lot of Americans don't really realize that what happens in America finds its way to Canada. So <laughs> we, we have a mega problem up here now, um, which is that uh, it, ever since Trump, it's sort of awakened the fringe of conservatism that you don't really want to wake. And we have a new leader of the conservative party. He's the leader of the opposition up here, Pierre Polyev, who courted these, uh, you know, the, the the Canadian mega kind of fringe element up here. And, and it's directly related to, I guess, uh, I guess all this stuff started during the Tea Party, but specifically Trump's election awakened this, um, that kind of hard right philosophy up here uh, where overt racism is, is now more prevalent uh, you know, like uh, these uh, these ideas about immigration are now overt. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's an interesting cultural kind of phenomenon that we have to deal with that now. 
And, uh, you know, I, I feel like your the, the, the documents that you leaked, if, if, if The Intercept had done it right, it could have been something that kind of, not, not put a, not a bottleneck to that kind of cultural phenomenon, but, but at least kind of slowed it down a little bit because now it's a joke to the right. The, uh, you know, the Russia hoax is really what they would call it, right? Like they, they, there is no part of them that wants to say, like, do you remember how anti-Russia the Republicans used to be compared to now? Like, I can't even believe my ears when I listen to these people speak, or at least when I did it over the last few years. Oh, yeah. I mean, if uh, Ukraine had, or if Ukraine had been invaded by Russia during Bush's era, they would be totally different. Um, it's just, it's crazy now. Um, like here's a comment from one of our listeners. This is, uh, Alex Jones just endorsed the leader of the conservative party in Canada. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like this would have been unheard of like five years ago, you know? And it's, uh, let me ask you this. They just found about 10,000 times the amount of classified information at Margo Lago, Mara Lago, Mara Lago. How do you say that? Mar-a-Lago? Uh, Lago. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it means. <laughs> it means it means orange douchebag, something like that. Um, but uh, but uh, but then I heard you say I think it was on an NBC interview that you they don't think that Trump should get jail time for having thousands of times more classified material in his possession than you had. I thought that was both interesting and and kind of strategic in a great way. Can you tell us why you don't think that it, he deserves jail time? For, for the classified documents that he has? Right. So right now he's still under investigation and I don't think that anybody should be immediately incarcerated undergoing an investigation. That's when investigations become weaponized. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I don't think that these laws surrounding classified materials need to be as strong as they are now. Um, I understand that this information should not be brought to the public for free or just at any whim of any employee that may have access to them, you know, and that's why I've always said I broke the rules and I know why I did and I accept all responsibility, but that doesn't mean that um, I'm going to run around pointing at other people. Ha, you had three pieces of paper. You're going down. I don't do that because I don't want what happened to me to happen to anybody else. I think that this would have been a great time to engage with the right and say, you know what? The FBI does have a lot of power in the United States, Let's talk about that. You know, let's talk about the fact that we're not going to um, destroy somebody's career over an investigation, Hillary Clinton, you know, um, that um, if you're found with classified information, you're automatically a spy. You know, I mean, that those are the conversations that I was expecting to have. And of course, the left is so desperate to uh, do anything against Donald Trump that they're saying, no, these laws need to be strengthened. And I'm like, no, they need to be made very specific as to if you are committing espionage, there needs to be, you know, country B, you need to know which country it is, were they selling it? Is it actually national defense information? Because under what I was charged, 793E, a willful retention and disclosure of national defense information, the prosecution, aka the government, has no burden to prove that what they define as national defense information is indeed national defense information. It does not say classified information. It just says national defense information. It could be a national defense stick figure for all they want to argue in court. So 
to make these laws more specific in the future so that people like me and people like Daniel Hale and Terry Albury aren't doing four to five years in prison would be nice. But also, maybe he did commit espionage. We don't know because while the FBI has way too much power, they're also extremely political and they decide whom they're going to charge. Um, and I personally, I mean, you know, not I'm not saying I, I would be like in tears if I was wrong, but Donald Trump has you know, had a foot on either side of the law since the 80s. It's not a secret. Like, whatever, we, I don't know what, what you want to say. You know, Occam's razor would point to incompetency over conspiracy. I'm thinking Illuminati, but that man is not going to be indicted for anything ever. Like, you know, but I just don't think that the left, um, you know, basically surrounding the FBI with love and affection and respect even though they've done nothing but abuse civil rights in this country, thinking that that's going to result in an indictment against Donald Trump is the right way to go. That's not the progressive way to go. And, you know, I've said it before, you know, the double bladed sword is sharper on the backswing. You know, yes, Donald Trump was found with classified information and you want to make that an automatic life sentence for everybody found and that you want five years for every piece of paper or you want, you know, my sentence to be the starting when it should be the highest ever. I don't want anybody ever getting more time, you know, unless you're actually committing espionage and you need to be detained so you don't commit more espionage. There needs to be a restorative justice approach to this. You know, and then the idea of we don't incarcerate former presidents, you know, that shouldn't be a green light to go rob a Best Buy and shoot six people in the process. But, you know, this is something where it is so politicized and it's like under all the eight clauses of the Espionage Act of 1917, you can see them charging him for it, but you can also see them not charging him for it. Maybe those 10,000 documents weren't national defense information. You know, every time I read these articles, because I do, because I was once the subject of them and I'm curious, it's always like sources say, or the DOJ released in a press statement, but there's never a name on it. You know, and so anytime I see sources, I know that's illegitimate. Or, you know, somebody saying something on the download, the same way the prosecution would say things about my diary entries. Like, mm -hmm. is there an indictment or not? And you can't just, you know, investigate somebody indefinitely and use it as a weapon and use it as a reason why they're a bad person. Because, and every time the left rallies around this and says, this is how how the process goes, you're talking about another 5 million, you know, of, of minority Americans being put under indefinite um, investigations for drug conspiracy. You know, when you lessen the burden of proof that the government has, basically it means another 5 million people in jail. And it's very easy for white people to say that because those 5 million people aren't going to be white. And that's a problem. I have a problem with the system of criminal justice in this country. I'm not going to ask them to have more power because I think that somebody that I personally don't care for as a politician should go down. Yeah. We could put ourselves back 20 years if we give the DOJ more power and they're still not going to charge the man. Reality check. They're not. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I, I think, I think that they're for two reasons. One is what you just mentioned. We don't do that or the Royal. We, we don't do that to ex-presidents. Um, and no. also 
I'm totally with you regarding what the left has done. When George W. Bush was president, all the left loved to do was to criticize, and rightfully so, I thought, the intelligence community and the FBI. That's what they did. And then as soon as Trump became president, all of the people that they used to criticize were now guest analysts on MSNBC. And it was really gross to see that, you know, like that was, it was hypocrisy playing out in real time. And yeah. 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 And I watched that and uh, you know, and, and, and I started to, I started to like really understand American. I, I thought I had understood American politics to a certain degree, <laughs> but when that happened, I was just, I was completely floored by how easily they betrayed their own principles. You know? Exactly. If you're for the left. You should be for, Minimum law enforcement, you should be for making more things not illegal or criminalized. And it just seems like all they've done is wanted more, more and more people to go to prison, you know? And it's just like, I I thought that my party was for more civil rights and for less prison. Um uh, we're, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it in a in a couple minutes here. I just wanted to see if you wanted to because I know that we talked about this uh, a little bit the first time we spoke like a week ago. Um, the Rob Elementary School shooting, it's something that's impacted you, hasn't it? I mean, it's outside my district. Uh, definitely, I couldn't go even if I had like a journalistic interest in going. Um, but using my platform to elevate like what the families are going through has been a priority of mine and to talk about, you know, gun reform in Texas, as well as, you know, talking about what Beto is going to offer if he becomes governor. Yeah. Beto's an interesting cat. He looks so good next to the other governor um, candidates. I never really liked him all that much as a candidate for president. I just thought he came off a little bit too, I don't know, weak or something like he just seemed uh, like he was saying all the right, really progressive things, but he didn't seem like a guy that, would be a strong president, but a governor, maybe, you know, he seems to make a lot of sense when it comes to the issues that, uh, that are impacting people in Texas right now, especially the gun reform stuff. And I think he just announced two days ago that he wants to legalize marijuana. So the drug war in Texas might be lessened if he was uh, governor. Oh, absolutely. And you know, that's right there. That's criminal justice reform. That's right. Reality Winner, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. We'll talk on the phone uh, in, in the next couple of days because I want to see if I can help you out with the uh, um, with with some of the gun reform stuff that you want to that you want to take on. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for no having problem. me. Thank you very much. Reality Winner, everybody. That she is so smart. Like I, I, I'm so happy that I was able to uh, to have her on today. I thank her very much for being so generous with her time as well. She, um, wow, what a life lived so far. And she's only. I think she's 30 something, 31 or something like that. But in any event, um, I think uh, I, I th talking to her made me realize a couple of things that I, that I, I didn't really understand before. Um, one of them was um, the, 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 the conditions of, of, of women's prisons. That, that is something that I certainly didn't know. Um, yeah, she, she, she is more of a hero of mine now than she was before I, I, I started talking to her about a week ago. So um, yeah, that was a, that was a really refreshing interview. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And, uh, we are going to see you again tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow we have uh, sitting Senator Leo Husakos on, he's going to talk about bill C 11, which is the Orwellian internet censorship bill from the Trudeau government. And, um, and yeah, we're going to have a good conversation there. So, uh, thank you once again to reality winner, and we'll see you next time on black ball.
favorite girl that's right it's the ali mars the one and the only everyone else just ain't me i am the host of welcome to mars a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table i have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle we still talk sex but i'm more interested in the journey where people have come from how they made it and where they're going Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.